Hello, listeners, and welcome to this spring edition of The Crit. We are recording, actually, on April Fool's Day, the, the most mischievous day of the year. India, have you, have you had any mischief visited upon you? No, I think April Fool's in this economy... No, usually, usually I love a good prank, but I think my uh, my prank tank is empty at the moment. I don't think I could take living in anything more of a joke than this country already is. But we'll tell you what's no joke. The new issue of Desenio, the Quarterly Journal of Design, which has just arrived on shelves. So we've been working on that a lot in this in the past few months. Yeah, we've had a really busy month, but um, it's very exciting to see it. It's it's a very spring-looking edition. They've done a really bang-up job with that cover. It's very zesty-looking. It is, and it's full of some really fascinating stories. India, for instance, went to visit East Quay in Watchit to look at what a community centre could do in a post-industrial town. We have reflections on the Nakagin uh, capsule tower in Tokyo, which is now due to be demolished, looking back on its legacy. There's a story from Mumbai, Um, which investigates the city's historic jewels and a whole lot more. So do pick up a copy. It's available from our website, desenyojournal.com. I suppose we should do the podcast though as well. So keep listening. (laughs) (laughs) We're multi-talented, multi-pronged. You can read us on the bus. You can listen to us in your earpods. You can go online. And, you know, we've been paying attention this month. We haven't just been, you know, busy, locked away, poring over magazine pages. There's been a Quite a lot of news, in case you haven't noticed, but there's been some interesting design news too. Yeah. So let's uh, shower you with that news. Well, our first story for the month, this is the news that Marsha Ramroop, the Reba Royal Institute of British Architects, first ever head of diversity and inclusion, is leaving her post after little, a little bit over a year in the role. India, did you see this story? Yes, I did. And it seems like uh, there's no kind of concrete explanation given for why she left. The kind of statements from both sides have been unanimously positive, I understand. Yeah, so there's no conclusive explanation as of yet. But let me give listeners a quick rundown of the story. So Marsha Ramroop is an ex-BBC journalist. She was hired to the Reba in February 2021. And the idea was she was supposed to come in and uh, clean up Reba's house a little bit. Over recent years, there have been a number of quite tone-deaf gaffes coming from the Reba, like promoting cookery classes on International Women's Day, for instance, or sending cease and desist letters to Elsie Wusu, who was an architect who'd called out the Reba for racism. There's also been scandals around its equality, inclusion and diversity manager posting all lives matter on LinkedIn. So it was quite important, I think, uh, for the Reba that someone come in and work a lot more on diversity and inclusion and and, and help steer that organisation forward. And initially, uh, Marsha seemed very successful. She introduced a number of different initiatives, um, including Reba Radio, a week-long broadcast of music, interviews and discussions on diversity. She also set up guidance on menopause and use of gender pronouns and various communities where there were groups of lived experience to try and to try and drive the organisation forth a little bit. So a, a very promising start, which I think is why this news was surprising to learn that she's stepping down after not so long in the role. 
Indeed, and it's important that we don't want to speculate too much, but um, it has been reported in some outlets, including the Architects' Journal, that um, Reba has been making a lot of budget cuts generally recently. They've been merging regional offices, there's been funding cuts, as with many institutions at the moment, which I think opens up a kind of wider conversation about institutional commitment to these kinds of diversity programmes, because I think it's as important as kind of journalists and members of the design industry to check in and make sure that everywhere that kind of got on board, as it were, with the 2020 conversation about racial justice is still is still putting the funds and the effort and the support towards those programmes that they all kind of rushed to bring in and those hires that they made a big fanfare about hiring. Yeah, exactly. I think at the time you saw so many different brands and institutions being very keen to engage on social media and things like that. There was Blackout Tuesday, for instance, which everyone seemed to rush to take part in. And I think you're right. What the problem is, is sort of statements like that are very easy and they kind of exist as branding in a way almost, don't they? It's it's a sign of showing you care and it's very straightforward, it's very flashy, it's very grabbing. Whereas a lot of the work that actually needs to happen to improve diversity and inclusion is, you know, it's not necessarily headline grabbing. It's hard, it requires funding, it takes time. It's not something that institutions can immediately shout about. But you're right, it's quite worrying. And like I say, we don't know exactly what's happened with Rebra, although they do have a huge budget deficit of 8 million i think is the is the most recent figure but you, you know it it it's a little bit worrying to hear talk of people's budgets for these kind of programs already being scaled back particularly in architecture which as a field is famously lacking in diversity i think most recent figures from the architects registration board uh, they say that white men account for 64% of architects. Now, that's significantly more than the 43% of white men within the UK's working age population. Uh, they've received, seen some improvement in recent years, more women coming into the profession. But I think as of 2019, of registered members uh, that the Architects Registration Board have, just 1% of architects describe themselves as black. Now, that's pretty troubling. Yeah, and like you say, this this rock goes really deep and it's a lot in the first place to ask one person, you know, a woman, a person of colour to come in and to fix all of these issues for an institution and issues that also show up in the wider industry. Um, and it sounds like Ramroop did a really sterling job of getting the ball rolling. As you said, she like brought in all these conversations, she started all these kind of culture-based initiatives. But it's not enough to trot someone out and do a lot of publicity and fanfare around their hiring if you're not going to support them in the long term. I think you're right. On an issue like this, which is so important and which really needs change, you kind of can't cut that budget down to bare bones if if that is what's happened. You know, you, because often when you have budgetary cuts, you kind of do that sort of thing of saying, well, we're going to run a skeletal operation. Let's really focus down on our core areas and get back to doing things in a more stripped down way. And the problem with something like diversity is 
The situation before was not acceptable. It cannot be allowed to go back to that or continue like that. So you have to put the funding into it to make sure that you are making progress there and that things are changing. It's just one of those areas where I think it almost has to be invulnerable to budgetary cuts, even if you need them across the wider sector. Now, that is difficult, but that's what I mean with this stuff around diversity and around inclusion. It's not always glamorous. Sometimes it's really hard and you've got to stick with it, though, because just doing those flashy public facing initiatives really aren't enough. It's also a false economy, because if you're getting, you know, if you lose your diversity and inclusions officer, if you if they go back to having another one of these scandals it's so detrimental to the institution and to everyone affiliated with the institution I mean you you want it to survive financially but you also don't want to get accused of kind of woke washing which I understand was one of our recent um articles in Desenio in Desenio 27 a piece called The Revolution Will Not Be Branded by the academic Francesca Sabande. It's a very good piece looking at how brands can engage with issues around racial equity and justice, around gender, and do so in a more meaningful way without it slipping into marketing and branding. You won't be surprised to learn uh, she concluded it's very difficult for it not to slip into marketing and branding. Luckily, we have some slightly more positive news next. Um, Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Just for you, Ollie, just for you. (laughs) Thanks very much. I'm pretty excited about this. Give me the the positivity. Diabeto Francis Carré has been announced as the recipient of the 2022 Pritzker Prize. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Pritzker Prize is, well, it's basically the Nobel of architecture. It's, It's the most prestigious award. It will be the the award that goes before his name. He is now Pritzker Prize winning architect Francis Carré. Yeah, and it's structured a little bit like the Nobel as well. So this isn't an award for a specific building. It's an award which is given for an overall body of work. So what's being recognised here is uh, Francis Carré's contribution to architecture over the course of many years and many projects. And um, the stipulations are that it goes to a living architect and... It's someone whose work has produced a consistent and significant contribution to humanity and the built environment through the art of architecture. I think Kerry is a really good choice for this because, I mean, India, you've been looking into his career in, in preparation for this, I, I imagine. But correct me if I'm wrong, he's someone who, who made his name really with a series of um, healthcare centres and schools um, in a lot of different countries, some in his, his home country, Burkina Faso, but also all around Africa. Um, which were very site-specific, right? And they they did some interesting things with air circulation and and things like that. Yeah, he's a big believer in community. So he's from Burkina Faso and he did some training in Germany, but he returned to his home country and he set up a foundation um, to fund the build of a school. It was initially a primary school. He's come back and he's extended it several times. And they... um, his kind of particular brand of innovation is mixing kind of indigenous knowledge and materials. So these kind of perforated clay bricks that allow airflow um, with kind of more modern technology and design. So he's created these beautiful vaulted 
kind of barrel vault roofs that are lifted up on these structures to protect from the sun and the rain but stop kind of heat accumulating making these classrooms kind of comfortable and also very affordable but after making his name with the Gando Primary School yes he's um, had some pretty sizable conditions kind of doing national assemblies uh, a campus in Kenya and he's also um, done work outside of the African continent notably he did the Serpentine Pavilion a couple of years ago. He did, and very nice it was too. I think he's a really good choice for the winner, actually. And I meant to read the quote from Alejandro Aravena, a previous winner, and um, the chair of this year's Pritzker Jury, who said, Francis Kerry's entire body of work shows us the power of materiality rooted in place. His buildings, for and with communities, are directly of those communities in their making, their materials, their programmes and their unique characters. They have presence without pretense, and an impact shaped by grace. I think that's a really lovely quote because I have to say, Francis Carey's buildings are beautiful. I think they're they're very sort of powerful, impressive, lovely spaces. But I I don't think they're ever showy. They're a very far cry from the kind of form making you've seen from some previous winners. And it's so nice that his practice is very rooted in um, the specific locations in which he works. But I, I do think there's a there's a big, uh, a more general and more universal quality to it, too. So, I mean, we've we've just come out of a pandemic where kind of we're thinking a lot about ventilation of buildings. We know air conditioning is very energy intensive and with climate collapse, it's really worth looking at maybe some architects who are doing things slightly differently in that area, looking at the way in which sort of Francis Kerry is naturally ventilating buildings and thinking, well, you know, how can that be applied elsewhere? What lessons can be taken from this that apply more broadly? Yeah, his work has this kind of inherent anti-colonial quality to it, this idea that actually the traditional architectural ways in scare quotes of ventilating a building um, are incredibly energy intensive and there are actually solutions that don't involve like incredibly high-tech components or expensive materials you know there's no point in building an air conditioning unit somewhere that will break down in a few years time and then be like incredibly expensive to um, repair especially if you're working in like a more remote location. No, I agree. I think he's very much an architect for our times. I think if you look at his work, all the grand themes which are interesting people across the industry are there. Uh, Also an important win and a a sort of historic win for any number of reasons. He's the first black architect to win the Pritzker, uh, first African architect to win the Pritzker as well, which when you think about this is an award which has been running for decades that nobody from an entire continent has won this before. So I think an important win in that respect. Yeah, it's kind of nuts because this award has been going since 1979 and kind of part of its founding uh, ethos was that it was awarded irrespective of race or creed. And while it hasn't been entirely kind of male, pale and stale, there have been um, you know, a lot of Asian architects who've been recognised for their work. We've had a couple of South American architects, Indian architects. It's been quite, it's, it's a who's who's of who is already a big name 
in architecture who's already established beyond the top of their game almost, which is interesting because, Ollie, you pointed out that Francis Carrier is actually pretty young to be receiving this award in kind of architect terms. Yeah, in architect terms, he's someone... Because I think often the Pritzker, understandably, because it does have that sort of lifetime achievement vibe to it, it's often gone to practitioners in... Uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying it. In the twilight of their careers, perhaps. People who've made an enormous contribution, but maybe no longer represent the vanguard of the industry. Perhaps they've moved on to bigger, more corporate projects or something like that. And the early work which made their name feels quite a long time ago. I don't think that's the case with Francis Kerry, and that is quite unusual. It's not unprecedented. I think, you know, Aravena is also a younger architect, still doing interesting work and so on. So there have been previous winners, but that's a really nice side to see someone recognised and to have that sense of, well, the best may be yet to come. I mean, India, you mentioned previously National Assemblies. He, he has two designs at the moment in Benin and Burkina Faso, and those will be his largest projects when they complete. So I, I, I suppose there's a sense of excitement around that to see someone recognised who who remains in the cut and thrust of the industry and where there's there's a lot more that you could expect to come from them. But equally, I think having said that, you know, who's to say just because an architect gets bigger projects, more sizable ones, more sort of symbolically significant, that those are better or more important? You know, like it, it may be that Francis Kerry, when his career eventually comes to an end, when he retires, you look back and say, those early school projects were amazing they were really important they were small scale but they still stand up you know like an architect can be important for something other than doing big cultural institutions or major sort of global hubs i've said major global hubs that's not a project type <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what no, that I is think, i think i think you're onto something there because in many ways it feels like the pritzker prize is trying to like get with the zeitgeist um, become a little bit more modern and who it recognizes it's these more radical kind of socially and ecologically minded practices. Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal won recently and their kind of modus operandi is retrofit. So, you know, it's working, um, especially with a lot of like social housing. It's not kind of grand new buildings that they are projecting their kind of big architecture ego onto. Um, Likewise, Francis Carey is um, really big on community values, on giving back to one's community, on educational projects, on kind of government projects. And also, it's right there on his website, like he definitely centres his community that he was raised in. He's not going to, I don't want to make predictions, but I would be very surprised if he suddenly kind of uh, conforms and does, you know, a airport that's in a very kind of like general (laughs) style. Maybe that will be his shocking next step. He'll just do H&M stores all around the world. (laughs) Just fabulous H&M stores. Another story which caught my eye this month was the announcement from the Met in New York that they have appointed the architect Frida Escobedo to oversee the planned $500 million revamp of its modern and contemporary art wing. Now, this is quite significant because this has been a long-running story. The Met have been trying to overhaul this space for 
the best part of a decade. And actually, initially, under a previous director, Thomas Campbell, they had appointed David Chipperfield to take on this role. David Chipperfield famously has done a huge number of museums elsewhere. Uh, So a safe pair of hands, perhaps. But over time, I think costs began to go up. There began to be questions of the project and it was opened up again. It was opened up to different practices. And ultimately, they have decided that Frida Escobedo is the person to take it forward. Yeah, and this is exciting on lots of different levels because I think it goes back to our Pritzker conversation. She is young. She's in her early 40s, which in architect years is like, you know, very beginning of the career. You know, your training takes so long. (laughs) Straight out of nursery type thing. Yeah, Basically, she's an infant practically. She's a woman. She's Mexican. So it's very forward-facing of the Met to pick her over David Chipperfield, who he has this back catalogue of museums that he's worked on. I thought it was interesting that the New York Times, in reporting on it, said that she's not a household name. But then, I mean, how do you become a... Yeah, rude. But also, like, how do you become a household name? You need uh, these big institutions to give you a project. Yeah, and I mean, also, let's face it, how many architects are household names? It's not like sort of (laughs) families around the country sitting around for dinner and saying, well, what I really want to discuss this evening is John Pawson. Now, of course, we all know John Pawson and all the children nodding. Oh, yes, yes, of course, we're all familiar with John Pawson. It's a a slightly strange way of framing it, I think. I agree. Yeah, I mean, architecture discourse can get quite insular like that. But I did enjoy that Chipperfield tweeted, then deleted um, his sorrow at losing the project. But he he did also like wish um, Frida the best. But then I guess, you know, his PR team had to wrestle his phone away from him because he was getting off message. I think it would have been much funnier if he just tweeted her saying, like, I hope this fails. I'm furious. I wish nothing but ill on this project. But you're right, like, David Chipperfield is a fantastic architect. He's made some really beautiful museums. And I I do sometimes think this a little bit. It is nice to see a new face come forward and get a chance to do this because we kind of know what a David Chipperfield museum looks like. Yeah, they're fabulous. They're lovely. But we've, we've got them. They already exist. You can go and visit them. Tickets, I imagine, are affordable. So to have a new space come up and someone who, okay, she's at the start of her career, but she has an impressive body of work already, often in more temporary spaces and more retail spaces. I think that's quite nice to think like, oh, well, what does a Frida Escobedo museum wing looks like? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. And instantly the project feels a bit fresher as a result. Yeah, and she says that she wants to connect to New York's cultural diversity. And I think in a way, uh, you know, a Mexican woman designing a extension for the Met is far more uh, in keeping with New York's population than an older white British architect coming in to do it. And it it feels like the Met is trying to like drive forward a new programme internally as well of being kind of more open to different cultural voices. I know that for the upcoming edition of Disenio, um, you were involved in setting up a round table with the Met's new period room. I was, yeah. This is a great project and you can pick up a copy of Disenio from our website if you'd like to read more about it. Uh, this is an Afrofuturism period room called Before Yesterday We Could Fly. It's the work of the production designer Hannah Beekler 
and the academic Michelle Commander working with the Met's in-house team and a number of really great designers who have created a room that corresponds to black history in New York, but also blends that with Afrofuturism, with contemporary design work. It collides multiple different timescales together. It's an unbelievably rich and exciting project for any number of reasons, uh, showcases work that previously had not been in the Met, and also takes aim a little bit at the fiction of period rooms, where they present themselves as if they are an objective snippet of history where of course they're very manufactured they're very worked upon before yesterday we could fly takes a different approach and leans into the fiction of these rooms and leans into them as spaces in which you can imagine the past but also different futures and different uh, presents i think hats off to the met it's a really exciting initiative Okay, so next up we have possibly the coolest job title I've ever heard of. Um, Vibe Commander. uh, Oh, God, no. Vibe Rockstar. Um, No. (laughs) High Priest of Chill. (laughs) Actually, High Priest of Chill works for this, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, actually. Well, so Christina Huerbo has been appointed the uh, High Priestess of Chill for Chile. She's the new Chief Heat Officer, which is kind of a, a, a new-ish title. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that we have to have them, but she'll be joining her fellow Chief Heat Officers in um, Athens, in Greece, Miami, in the US, and Freetown in Sierra Leone. What, what do they do exactly? Yeah, what, what is the role? It kind of, so it sits within urban planning and kind of future-facing design decisions for a city. It's basically heat-proofing Santiago. She was previously the chief of urban resilience, so I think it'll be in a similar vein for the work that she was already doing, but with a new focus on heat as the kind of one of the biggest threats that is facing Santiago and Chile generally. Right. And resilience is a growing term within the field, isn't it? So resilience is this kind of how can we design our way out of changing environmental circumstances? So rising sea levels, uh, extreme weather patterns, growing heat. What solutions might there be within design, technology, urbanism to try and mitigate some of the effects of that? Yeah, so we know, you know, climate change is happening. It's already being felt. Chile is facing severe water shortages, which is connected in part to having this privatised water system, which is a hangover from Pinochet, but um, there's also definitely a climate change issue. There is a drought, which is due to the warming oceans, and up in the Andes, the glaciers are shrinking, which is a kind of a problem in that less glacier means less water coming down to fill up their... um, water reserves but also if you lose your glaciers they stop reflecting all the heat back into the atmosphere um and so you they kind of act like air conditioners for the planet so you know chile and santiago particularly are at the center of a kind of climate crisis yeah i think it's very forward facing of chile to do this because extreme heat is a real problem i I looked up some statistics in advance of this and Globally, deaths caused by extreme heat are believed to have risen by roughly 74% between 1980 and 2016. 
Now, that's a, that's a huge rise, and we all know the reasons for that. But that's 356,000 people are reported to have been killed from extreme heat in 2019 alone. So if you have people living in cities and spaces which are affected by these rising temperatures, then that's something which needs to be baked into the urbanism. That's something which needs to be baked into policy. What do you do about that? What ways of mitigating that are there? So I think this is, as you say, Santiago isn't the first place to have done this, but I would feel pretty confident to say it won't be the last. So that brings us into our projects and product section where we have a look at some recent launches and recent exhibitions. Now, one I'm quite keen to speak to you about India is Radical Acts, Why Craft Matters. This is a biennial being hosted at Harwood House just outside of Leeds. And I was lucky enough to go for the opening there last week. Harwood House, if I understand correctly, is kind of a period property. You know, one of these grand country houses. Yeah, exactly. Harwood House is your classic English stately home. So a place of unbelievable luxury and privilege, very ornate, very grand, a huge amount of money spent doing this. Yeah, and I imagine money that was originally from the slave trade or something. Exactly. Harwood House was built by Edwin Lachelle, whose money came from the transatlantic slave trade. So they're trying to grapple with that history a little bit. Yeah, because the the title of the biennial this year is Radical Acts, Why Craft Matters. So, I mean, I'm intrigued that um, a a place with a history such as this, which, you know, they usually try to kind of sweep under the carpet, would embrace the phrase kind of radical acts and also try to kind of wrestle with with the history that made um, all the kind of like beautiful architecture and artefacts possible. Yeah, credit to them. This isn't the first time they've they've tried to chip away at that history and tried to chip away at the difficulty around it. Uh, but I think this is a really positive step forward. So Radical Acts has been curated by the uh, writer and curator Hugo MacDonald, and I think he's done a, a really excellent job of it. His focus is on craft with a social and environmental purpose. Um, And what he's putting forward is almost craft as a radical act, craft as providing alternative ways of living or alternative ways of approaching things. So whereas that house, Harwood House, through its history, almost stands as as a monolith of kind of establishment power and vested interests and very top-down approaches, Hugo has filled it with design projects which he thinks exhibit a kind of opposite effect really so where it's craft where very community orientated craft that emerges as a challenge to existing ways of doing things so one really nice example is Fernando Laposse's project Totemoxtel which we've written about in Decenio before and this is an initiative which um, used native corn species in a town in Mexico to replant some of the traditional corn species Uh, to create jobs and economic opportunity in the town because once those are harvested the corn has beautiful dual colours lots of different colours beyond the traditional yellow and Fernando then worked with the town such that they turned those into a veneer they produce marquetry so you get this beautiful design project out of the um, resulting from these social and environmental processes so that it's it's that kind of project which is on display 
I love Fernando. He has such a natty sense of dress. <laughs> and I'm going to give uh, a shout out to just a couple of other projects uh, which I think are interesting and which I hope drive people up to Harwood to see this. In the UK, we all know the design scene is very London focused, but there is amazing stuff going on elsewhere. So it is an opportunity to go and see that. Silver Scope is a project by Sebastian and Brogan Cox, which is a beautiful tree house that they've made in the grounds of Howard House. But the very exciting thing that emerges from it is it, that's kind of a Trojan horse. What Sebastian and Brogan have actually done is introduce a forest management programme at Harwood. So they've carved up a little bit of woodland into different ways in which you can manage that woodland to see what works. And that's quite exciting. So he's found this really fun, charming treehouse which lures everyone in, and then you learn a little bit more about woodland management. I think another one which deserves recognition is Open Code by Mac Collins. Um, now, what Mac has done is he's taken the games room in the house, and this is a room which is full of portraits of the family. So I think in normal circumstances, you would walk through that room and barely notice. You would just think, oh, yeah, no, it's it's portraits of wealthy people from the past. Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen it before. Um, Mac, uh, by contrast, has really zeroed in on that history. Uh, he has Caribbean ancestry. And has pointed out, you know, that the wealth of this place, that grotesque wealth, the sort of grotesque accumulation of power was built on the back of slave labour. So what he's done is created this oak games table that he's put in the middle of the room amongst the existing games tables. And on top of it, he's made a set of aluminium dominoes. Now, dominoes is a game with some real cultural resonance in the Caribbean. It's played a lot and it's really been um, adopted by the diaspora. As part of his research for this, Mac played dominoes with the Caribbean community around Nottingham, where he's based. And it has a really powerful effect, actually, just seeing this empty games table in the middle of the room. It completely changes the way you view the architecture in there. And I think that's where I would really like to credit Radical Acts. Um, some of the projects in particular, like Max, really do engage with the history of that place and use contemporary craft and design to shift the way you think about it. And that's not easy to do um, by any means. That's that's a really neat trick to pull off. So highly recommended. Uh, if you are in the Leeds area, do go and see it. And it's worth the trip. OK, so I have a product that I know this is usually a space where we uplift and celebrate new products and projects. But this one, I think, is actually like psychopathic. Um, <laughs> psychopathic uh, is a strong word. Uh, Seriously, I've gone through like several stages uh, with this um, <clears throat> with this product. I actually thought because we're recording this um, in the last week of March, I thought this was an April Fool's, but actually it is apparently genuinely serious. It I'm is trying the, to think what this is. The Dyson Zone air purifying headphones. Oh, I've seen it. I agree. This is psychopathic. It's bananas so apparently it's been in um kind of r&d stages for some sort of like six years so this is not a coronavirus response in fact they haven't thought about coronavirus at all when it comes to this but we'll get on to that um they is a piece of wearable tech that's a kind of personal air filter for your mouth and nose um combined with noise cancelling headphones so it kind of goes over your ears and then like out and around your mouth um 
this kind of bizarre frame and it's got these high powered fans and filters that are kind of going to blow um air at your mouth and nose so that you don't have to like breathe in the pollution around you and then these headphones which play music but also have like different noise cancelling settings so you can set them up max so you can't hear anything or you can like allow certain things to filter through so my first stage was okay this is bananas because um obviously everyone's worried about the effects of breathing in pollution we know that yeah of course it's a massive silent killer um but you know this is a very personal solution to uh what is like a community problem um you know everyone's breathing the same air if you're going to like bring your personal bubble of <laughs> filtered air around with you like that's not solving the problem for anyone if, if anyone hasn't seen this thing as well i should say <laughs> it looks extraordinary it looks like the mask that a morton joe wears in mad max that kind of post-apocalyptic <laughs> hellscape where he's strapped into it it's really not far off that it's it's a remarkable design yeah that you put your finger on it ollie i couldn't work out like what it was reminding me of it doesn't look comfortable it does look like it's kind of strapped right up against your face and it's such a interesting move for dyson um they're kind of like held up as this like poster child of like british innovation and um you know usually they do vacuum cleaners but they have moved into the kind of personal accessory space with the um really expensive fancy hairdryer i'd say i think this is totally in keeping with what dyson do if you asked me who will have made a ludicrously over-engineered expensive product (laughs) to deal with pollution and go oh is it the person who massively over-engineered and made awful hand dryers could it be that person you know like it it's in keeping with that Initially, I was like, oh, well, this is like terrible because, um, you know, all of that money and uh, research that could have gone into looking at kind of the actual like problems behind pollution, which generally affect like low income urban communities. Like Those are the people that have to send their children to school near busy roads or near power plants. Um, So I was already like dispositioned to dislike this product. And then I saw this brilliant thread by Naomi Wu, who is a tech YouTuber from China. And she basically outlines how it is much worse um than you know even that she calls it the dyson snot cannon and basically (laughs) it said that this is a huge danger to public health because back when it was being developed our understanding of kind of viral transmission was very much focused on like droplets and touch which is why when the pandemic started we were all like okay like stay six feet away from each other and wash your hands all the time which is still good advice but we didn't realize how aerosols were so key to transmission so that's the kind of like teeny tiny little um water particles that are blown out every time you breathe out so this kind of strap on hand dryer for your face is just going to blow all of the aerosols of everything that you breathe kind of like out around you. Oh, it weaponizes you. Yeah, it basically turns you into a bioweapon. <laughs> if you have COVID and you're wearing one of these, you will infect everyone in a radius kind of around you. And the insane thing is, you looked at the pictures, where is the pictures of the person wearing the uh, Dyson face mask? Hang on. Where are they, sorry? They're in a train carriage. <laughs> 
Oh, so, <laughs> so, sorry, I, I dropped the ball there. I said, am I meant to say something? I don't know. <laughs> if you're staring at the pictures of them, the, the photo of um, the, the guy wearing the Dyson Zone air purifying headphones, he's on like a tube carriage. If you get on the tube and you have COVID, you know, you're asymptomatic, you, you know, tests aren't free in the UK anymore, you don't have to isolate anymore, you're just going to like give everyone in that train carriage COVID. I think I think you hit the nail on the head, really. This is the classic tech bro solution to a social problem. Like you say, yeah, we absolutely need to tackle air pollution. Of course we do. It's essential. But the way to do that isn't by strapping ourselves into these expensive hand dry masks. That's mad. I also just think on a design level, I do not get this Uh, product in the slightest because this will presumably be a relatively expensive thing to buy there's a lot of tech in there i don't think they've announced a final price but you know i'd be i'd be surprised if it's that much different to a thousand pounds or something now if you're spending that much on something presumably you'd like it to look good you'd like it to look nice and this looks incredibly plasticky and clunky like if you're someone who is willing to spend sort of a thousand pounds on a mask I would have thought you'd want that thing to look pretty sleek, you know, like may- maybe not. Maybe there are some people who say, no, I just want it for its functionality, say. But I would I would have thought a lot of people would say it just looks awful. I don't want to. I'm spending so much money to look so stupid, so achingly stupid on my on the train. It's 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 a bizarre design. So from that uh, real low of industrial design, I want to talk about a project I think has very strong industrial design. This is Plus Minus, a new lighting system by Stefan Dietz for the Catalan lighting brand Vibia, which launched this month. We actually, again, to plug Desenio, we have an article in our most recent issue about this. So if you'd like to find out more, you can there. Um, now, India, you have seen Plus Minus, haven't you? I have, and I love this. This is so, so cool. Yeah, so the idea of plus minus was what different ways could there be of delivering electricity to a light other than using concealed copper wires? And what Stefan and his studio working with the textile designer Karina Worth have come up with is a solution where instead of wires, you have a textile belt. And it's, you know, looks a pretty standard textile belt, like like something you wrap around your waist. It's it's very persuasive, but it's woven through with conductive uh, conductive thread. So what that means is you can create this sort of textile belt that runs around a room in whatever shape you want. You can loop it down. You can stretch it really tight and have it slashing across the air. And then Stefan's designed a couple of really simple different lights, like a cone light, a sphere light, and those just clip on. They clip on at any point. You can clip them off at any point and they draw power from the belt. It's a really wonderful, visually witty, lovely product, I think. Yeah, and it's not just a kind of one note pun. It's a really like beautifully thought out system. And also, like, it just feels like the possibilities are endless because you're not going to be uh, kind of hamstrung by cables and cords that you have to kind of hide away a lot of architectural photographs and interior design photographs they you know they hire someone to like photoshop out all of the wiring and plugs because they're considered unsightly and cluttery but this turns the mode of 
kind of delivering electricity into something you know beautiful and functional and the fact that you can kind of almost like plug and play like every little light you can take it on take it off again it doesn't damage the belt you can kind of move everything around I think as a very nice kind of like sustainable use as well you know you can take down a lighting system wrap it up and then unwrap it again and do it in a completely different configuration exactly and I think that's what Stefan is drawn to he's a real systems guy I think if he can he would always rather design a system rather than a product and this has quite a few advantages for instance you can create very dramatic things from it with this belt and lights you can create chandeliers you can do really basic paired back things like task lighting But one of the things I think is quite exciting about it, for instance, is you can create these very impressive, grand lighting installations, but they don't necessarily, they're not very invasive in the architecture, for instance. So if you were working within a protected building, say, and you wanted to create a very dramatic lighting installation, that can be quite difficult if you're having to sort of mess around with that architecture and wire things in, the advantage of this is it's very, very light. You know, it has to make connection with the mains at one end, fine, or you can plug it in. There is a version which plugs in. But after that, you can create these incredibly um, elaborate, really impressive, immersive light uh, installations without kind of having done any damage to the architecture. So it's quite a freeing system in that respect. Yeah, well, so it looks nice when it's off, which is a good thing, because with the energy crisis, we're not going to be turning our lights on for a while. So you can put it up and just enjoy it, even without the lighting functionality. And I went to see it in person and can vouch it's really nice just to twang the belt. Perfectly safe. You can just sit there sort of pouring at it like a really overgrown house cat. I had a great time doing that. Uh, So check it out. Have a look at Plus Minus. You can find out more in the new issue of Desenio. So this is a launch that I'm really excited about. Um, It's got a little bit more of an affordable price point than the plus minus. Um, It is Queer Spaces, an atlas of LGBTQIA plus places and stories from Reba Publishing. It's a new book. Uh, It's a lovely big hardback um, with 90 uh, projects featured. So they're all going to be uh, queer spaces, some that are kind of important to queer history some spaces that are like queer owned um and it's written by adam nathaniel Furman, architect designer and joshua mardell who's an architecture historian and um have you seen the cover of this ollie i have it's spectacular really beautiful shimmery exactly what it should be very very enticing very sort of visually decadent i love it Yeah, it's got this like iridescent um, foiling over the font. So it's kind of like, you know, rainbows, but um, in a very chic way. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm super excited to get my hands on this. It's really uh, nice to see something that kind of positively celebrates queer architecture, especially given the kind of current climate um, of persecution of like queer people. And I think that uh, something that celebrates the spaces that celebrate and shelter them is something that's really nice and refreshing and much needed um so you know i'm glad that it's being published and i really hope that it does well 
Yeah, I think it's an important resource. It's such an interesting area to look at, to look at ways in which sort of sexuality and gender intersect with the built environment. And I think becoming more important by the year as people look into this more and realise it has a real impact. So for Adam and Joshua to have put this together, uh, I think is a great thing for the profession. I'm really excited to look through and see the research that they've done. And in, in general, we need more of this. I mean, India, you you led in the most recent issue, for instance, um, a roundtable with Matrix, um, who they looked a lot at gender and space, for instance, didn't they? And were really ahead of their time in, in that respect, because they were sort of operating in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and they were a feminist movement that really grew out of kind of the lesbian and gay housing cooperative movements in London. So... Um, they, you know, all of these kind of radical uh, leftist movements kind of share this similar heritage. And I think, um, you know, a lot of traditional or mainstream ideas about architecture try to deny the fact that like gender and sexuality and all these kind of lived experiences and intersections of kind of identity and oppression really affect our lives and the way that we experience um, especially, you know, urban spaces, domestic spaces. Um, so it's really nice to kind of dedicate some study to that. And I think it's also, um, it's a very accessible way of presenting this. This isn't some kind of like lengthy tomb that's going to, um, you know, dictate to you like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words about kind of gender theory and sexuality theory. Uh, it's going to look really nice, going to be like full colour pictures, which is fun and celebratory um, as well as kind of serious and yeah thinking about something that does affect everyone even if they don't realize it yeah well I mean Adam's kind of built his career on many things but one thing is taking joy in architecture enjoying it making it kind of accessible that everyone's taste is valid everyone's preferences are valid and I'm excited to see what he does with the topic that is published by Reba Publishing and was released on the 2nd of May. So I think India and I will be picking up copies, and we hope you do too. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today. We've come to the end of our, our, our chatting with you this early April. Thank you for listening. If you want to stay in touch with us, we'll be back in about a month's time with a new episode. But in the interim, you can reach us on email at thecrit at decenniojournal.com. And we're also on various social media platforms. Only the good ones, though. No Facebook, where you can find us on at Decenio Journal. We'll be back in a month's time with even more news and analysis. So until then, have a good one. The Crit is presented by me, India Block, and Ollie Stratford, and has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki, with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. <laughs>